Hello, everybody. This is Guy Jacquet with Operation Encore again. We're here for podcast number 11 with Keith Broker. This is the second podcast that we're doing under the COVID-19 challenges. So this will again be a distributed interview with Keith being in Sacramento, my partner Adam Rossi down on the peninsula, and me up in Marin County. Uh, the audio quality, therefore, might not be what we would normally like, but please stick with us. Also, we want to remind people during these times that you know a lot of the artists out there have had you know their live gigs canceled, which is the way a lot of them make their money. So please support live music, either live streaming music or however you can. Uh, please support these musicians, whether it's contributing to tip jars at some of these shows or buying their merchandise. They can use it, uh, especially at these times. We have with us today Keith, uh, who is a former U.S. Air Force pilot. He spent 16 years in the Air Force, separating from the military rank of major. Flew the KC-135, which is, for those of you who don't know, is like a big, giant flying gas tank for other jets. He flew a Learjet for the uh, Air Force, if you want to get into, because that's the rock star jet for generals and VIPs. <laughs> and when he separated from the Air Force, was flying the U-2, the spy plane. He's currently a pilot with United and a great singer-songwriter, so we're going to be really happy to get in with Keith here. And again, I am joined on this podcast by my partner in crime on these, Adam Rossi of AR Audio. Adam, how you doing? I'm doing well down here on the peninsula. Good to be with you again. Keith Broker, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Very happy to do it. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Absolutely. And can you tell us what's happening up there in Sacramento right now? How are you guys doing? Yeah, well, we are rocking the homeschool. I'm uh, here for about a month just being dad, and I've been doing a lot of uh, scheduling of chores and schoolwork and yelling at people to accomplish chores and schoolwork and then pretty much doing most of the chores and schoolwork myself by the end of the day. <laughs> Taking care of it for your kids. <laughs> no, not the schoolwork. They're, they're actually working really hard, and they're doing a great job. And how so, has that adjustment been? It's been really interesting. Uh, my wife works. Uh, fortunately, she works from home and uh, has for about as long as I've known her. She's a director of marketing in the tech industry. Uh, it's a new position for her, fairly recent. And so super proud of that and really wonderful to be able to have her at home. But... With the boys at home all the time, we have 11- and 8-year-old boys. Uh, their names are Alec and Vaughn, and uh, they're, of course, home from school, which poses a lot of challenges in terms of my wife's ability to do her work. So I had the opportunity to take April as uh, kind of a down month and, and be here and just sort of dad it up like you read about. And so it was unexpected, I think, for everybody, and we are getting through it just like everybody else is, kind of one day at a time. But uh What we found is that it's actually kind of nice to spend time as a family and uh, get things back in order. There's yeah. a lot of chaos with two little boys and two working parents. And so with me at home right now, we've actually been able to establish a little bit more order. And I've gotten to know my boys a little bit better and some of their scholastic activities and things like that. So That's great. it's been surprisingly enjoyable. And you're currently a commercial pilot, yeah? That's correct. Yeah, I'm an airline pilot for uh, one of the major U.S. airlines and Of course, uh, the, the downside to all this is the uncertainty that we're facing. So we're just doing our best to not really focus on that part of it right now. Hopefully in a few months, we'll see an improvement in things like uh, people traveling and uh, people getting out. But most importantly, we want to see people staying safe and, and getting healthy and making sure the whole country ends up just back to a healthy place again. Uh, and hopefully that 
will allow my career to pick back up close to where it left off. Uh, hopefully, we won't have too many people losing jobs over this. Amen to that. Keith, you referenced getting back to normal times, but can you tell us a little bit about what normal times looks like? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I went from uh, flying military aircraft, you know, wearing a, a pajamas to work every day. That was <laughs> the flight suit was a great thing to putting on a tie. And now I fly the Airbus A319 and 320. Typically, what I do is I'll, I'll uh, leave on a Monday or a Tuesday and fly either a three or a four day trip. And then I get back on either Thursday or Friday and just sort of depends on when that last flight of that trip ends and come back from San Francisco and, and uh, get back home and be dad for three to four days and then go back out and do it all over again. So Keith, with 16 years in the Air Force and now flying commercial aviation, it sounds like you've been pretty much flying somewhere up in the air during your whole adult life. I have basically no other marketable skills. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, as long as you do this one well, I'm sure people will be very happy. Is flying something that you always wanted to do as a kid, or how did you, how did you get associated with aviation? You know, I would have been about six years old, and I remember distinctly my mom saying, what do you want to do? And I also remember distinctly saying, oh, I want to be an astronaut or a firefighter or a race car driver or a pilot. Then I was about 16, 10 years later, and I had been going back and forth between, believe it or not, veterinarian and pilot. I'm sure I had seen Top Gun too many times, and I'm sure I had seen Iron Eagle and actually bought it. Like, not the video, but the story. And... uh I remember being 16 years old with my mom in the emergency room because I had just had a weird thing where my left knee had buckled after swim practice. Like I just leaned funny on it and no kidding, it just gave out from under me. So I was having an x-ray done of my knee and sitting there waiting for the results with my mom. And she goes, so what are you going to do with your life? Uh, And I said, you know, I want to be a military pilot. And uh, that was kind of where it really crystallized. And I knew for sure that like this really is what I'm going to try to do. So I looked into it, had lots of conversations over the next year or so with, uh, started with recruiters, uh, and then that kind of led me to, well, if you want to be a pilot, you have to be an officer. And that means either reserve officer training corps, ROTC in college, or uh, something like officer candidate school or officer training school, uh, which is you already have a college degree and then you go off and do that. But no matter what, I had to be an officer, which meant I had to get a college degree. So it just sort of set the path in front of me and it made it obvious what wickets I would have to go through in order to attain that goal. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. And that was at age 16, you decided. Yeah. And yeah. so it was a little late for me to get my act together and get accepted to the Air Force Academy. Uh, I was not a stellar student my first two years of high school. I was in honors classes, but uh, typically didn't like turning in homework. So I really I just sort of struggled with maturity. Uh, but long about the end of sophomore year, my parents said, well, yeah, you can get your driver's license, but you're not going to be able to drive our cars unless we get a good student discount. And I just sort of went, what? Oh, well, I guess I'll start turning these assignments in. And my grades immediately went like to straight A's. I was like, you know, I really should have been doing this for the last few years. But that led me down the path of uh, being better prepared for college and getting an engineering degree and all that stuff that the Air Force thought was going to be good for officership. While you were developing your love for aviation, or at least your aspirations for aviation, were you also into music at that time? Were you playing anything? Or if not, I mean, what kind of music were you listening to? Yeah, I was a product of the 80s. So somewhere around age 12 for me was 1987. And I remember being out playing, you know, with the the kids uh, in the neighborhood. And, you know, one of the older kids, he was probably 13 and a half, was like, oh, man, so I'm sure you like Motley Crue. I was like, totally like Motley Crue. Yeah. Um, 
can I borrow your tape? And, uh, <laughs> and so I believe the first Motley Crue album I listened to was Shout at the Devil. Yes. Um, and uh, I remember my parents being utterly horrified. And uh, that pretty much cemented it for me. I was like, this must be great then. Started with, with that. And really, I became sort of a, like an Iron Maiden. I would call Iron Maiden sort of a, an intelligent, almost progressive metal sort of genre. And I really liked that kind of stuff. So right around that time, I also decided my brothers had this old like souvenir guitar that my great aunt had picked up for him in Mexico at some point on a vacation. And that had always just sat under his bed in the, you know, crappy little plastic vinyl case. Like it was just a little bag that it was in with white piping around the edge. I remember that. And I was never allowed to touch it. So that guitar always held sort of a mystique for me. And uh, right around the time I was 12 or 13, I finally said to him, hey, you know, Ed, can I just have that since you never touch it? And he was like, yeah, I don't care, whatever. Uh, so I picked up that old guitar and started playing on it. And I remember trying to pick out things like Stairway to Heaven and not realizing that you had to fret the strings in order to... I was like, I don't know how they make songs out of these six notes. Like, this is crazy. But uh, I sort of taught myself from there. By the time I was... 15 or so, I was able to play like entire songs. You know, I had learned how to play Sanitarium and Master of Puppets, you know, the Metallica stuff that everyone had to know at the time um, <laughs> and sort of challenged myself for that. By the time I was 16 or 17, uh, you were looking at like the Stone Temple Pilots and Alice in Chains stuff that was just, that was all in Soundgarden. That was all brand new and exciting. Which changed, and, uh, I remember, changed the landscape in the early 90s, yeah. Yeah, I just have to say, this is explaining a lot about you, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's a window to the horror that is my musical talent, yeah. I was probably 16 or 17 and I had learned Plush by Stone Temple Pilots. Plush was really probably one of the first songs that I ever learned how to play and sing. And I remember sitting in the bathroom because I thought the acoustics were awesome, basically because my own voice was banging off the tile back into my face and thinking like, this is pretty fun. And that's really where that all started. Then I got to college and was able to play in bands and stuff like that. And I've been involved in, in playing ever since that point. And so when you got to college and you started playing in bands, did that shift your trajectory at all or were you still just set on military yeah so it didn't change my trajectory it just gave me something that that really was kind of all mine i my parents never put me in music lessons we grew up in a very blue collar chicago suburb family and my folks didn't have the money for music lessons and stuff like that uh, and i really wanted to play and they didn't see music as a, a fruitful use of my time and so for them, it was kind of this thing that I did that they tolerated as long as I kind of kept my act together. And what was funny was later on being a guitar player, Eric can tell you this story, Eric Brine, uh, one of the, the founders of Operation Encore, for those of you listening, uh, is a guy that I went to pilot training with, so I've known him for quite a while. But uh, he can tell you that probably one of the things that saved me in pilot training in the early days was uh, me playing and singing for the squadron sort of a, a dirty rewrite of Stevie Ray Vaughan's Pride and Joy, just basically about everyone in the squadron's mothers and sisters. That was one of the things that made the instructors who thought, I don't know if this guy's going to make it, look at me and go, you know what? He's probably okay. Let's let's put a little more effort into polishing this turd of a pilot. So you were pretty close to the bottom of your class in pilot training. Is that is basically yeah. <laughs> a remake, a dirty remake of a Stevie Ray Vaughan song that 
got you through me. Is that, is that what you just said? <laughs> <laughs> it's, you would never think things like that are going to turn out to be true. But I, I do credit my success in an aviation career with my having learned to play the guitar and sing and, and having a little bit of a, a sense of humor about lyrics and, and the ability to at least rewrite, you know, sort of Weird Al Yankovic eyes otherwise good songs. But yeah, no kidding. I, when I started in pilot training, it was, uh, we started flying in July of 1999. I realized on the first flight in the T-37, which is a little twin jet, uh, you know, fully acrobatic trainer aircraft, uh, realized very quickly that I get airsick and uh, that's not a good thing for a military pilot. Like I was totally going to be flying F-16s upside down, shooting down the bad guys, pulling nine Gs. And the first time I, I rolled the airplane to 90 degrees of bank and pulled back on the stick way too hard, the instructor goes, whoa, and kind of takes the airplane from me. And shortly thereafter, like within a couple of seconds, I said something like, I can't see anything. And so I had blacked myself out. I had G-locked myself the very first time I, I really touched uh, an Air Force jet. And of course, I started feeling really crappy shortly thereafter. And so it took me a couple of months to get past that. But I worked really hard at it. I used to go to this thing called a barony chair, which is imagine an office chair with a rail around it. And some dude would spin you around in circles for like a half hour. And you do exercises where you put your head on the bar and then lift it to the ceiling while you're spinning around. Mm. And that will make you sicker than any amusement park ride in the world. Mm -hmm. But it's designed to kind of desensitize you to that stimulus and allow you to kind of work through the nausea. And I did that twice a day for three weeks while they were figuring out whether or not I was going to get to stay in pilot training. Wow. So, Keith, if we can do a segue from being sick for three weeks to the first song you have, <laughs> I think, called yeah. Two Weeks. Sure. So um, tell us a little bit about that song, and then we'll maybe we'll have uh, you play it. So Two Weeks, uh, obviously, is not related to being sick. Uh, <laughs> this is a song that uh, I wrote when I was quite a bit younger, actually. And it was about the, this was actually the father of my high school sweetheart. But I had found out through uh, his son, who I became friends with, his name was Craig. Craig had told me about his dad's service in Vietnam. And, and his dad, Henry Janikowski, he went by Hank, was a gunnery sergeant in the Marine Corps, carried the, uh, the M50 machine gun, uh, if there was a hand-carried version of that. If nothing else, it was basically the largest armament carried by the platoon. So he was the guy uh, who was the, the main target in a firefight. But he was also the guy that could bail everybody out when things got really bad. And he never talked about that kind of thing. He never talked about himself in terms of his service in Vietnam. But one of the stories that Craig had told me while we were just sitting around at some point uh, was that his dad had come home from Vietnam after serving his tour and had fallen in love with their mom via letters. Uh, and uh, so that was kind of a, a beautiful story. A couple of weeks after getting home, hence the name of the song, Two Weeks, he found out that most of his platoon had been wiped out in a crossfire in a rice paddy. And one of the things that was difficult for him about that was the wondering whether or not if he was there, he could have done something about it, or whether or not that was supposed to be him wiped out in that rice paddy. You know, all, all the, the sort of survivor guilt that you deal with in, in situations like that. Two Weeks is a song about my projection of how I would feel as a man like that when my son, uh, now approaching just beyond the age of legally being able to go into the service, comes and says, hey, Dad, I want to be a Marine like you. And uh, I'd like to dedicate this to the memory of Hank Janikowski, who uh, less than a year ago finally passed away. Uh, I hadn't talked to him in over 20 years, and uh, it was always sad that I never got to say goodbye. So maybe this can serve as that. Here we go. 
happy feeling Finally leaving Only thoughts of those I cannot see Two weeks later Longing anger Wasn't there was it Father, wife, daughters, some won't take for granted what I've seen. Scream and silence, pain is violence, some don't take for granted what I've seen. Be It's a great tribute to Hank. I want to know how much writing you'd been doing up to this point. I mean, had you been doing a lot of songwriting while you were in the military? I had uh, a really long spurt of writing right around the age of 20. I guess I sort of felt like I was comfortable enough with my musical ability to put my own ideas to the strings. I had probably written, you know, like one song during the high school years. 
maybe two or three and like played around with ideas, but I was always very uncomfortable uh, sort of putting myself out there in that much of a vulnerable way. And songwriting really does that. You have to sort of bear a little piece of your soul. But you, you were, have to very were, often... I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but you were playing in bands in college, yeah? While I was at home going to community college, I, I didn't have a band or anything like that, but that generated one of the first opportunities I had to play a song that I had written. There was a poetry group, and uh, they kind of got together every month. And the, the standard you, people that you would expect for something like that, really kind of deep thinking, uh, coffee drinking, this is the 90s, remember, coffee drinking, black wearing, Doc Martin kind of folks would, would get together and, and share their ideas. And I remember being absolutely floored by the the amount of themselves that they would pour out into a microphone for these uh, poetry uh, slams. And and I, I had no idea that poetry was like that. I had been used to things like Carl Sandburg, classic poetry that you get sort of shoved down your throat in high school. And uh, to see people my age writing their thoughts and feelings in such a beautiful way. Anyway, I was invited to be part of that because I had made friends with a couple of them. And they were like, why don't you come and play your songs? I was like, well, it's not that kind of thing. They're like, dude, it's the 90s. You do whatever you want. <laughs> and so that was... Uh, one of the things I did, I, I played a song called Gone. Uh, that was one of the earlier songs that I had written. And uh, I think I might have even played two weeks at that point. So I wrote that when I was probably 19 or 20. Let's talk about post-college. When you finish up in Illinois, you graduate from college there. Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> I think we talked about it, right? What town were you born in? Well, I was born at, uh, I believe it's Mercy Hospital in Chicago. So for, In Chicago. For okay, yeah. I was born in yeah. Evanston, so. Ah, no kidding. I don't know if we talked about that, but anyway. We did not. No, I was born across the street from McCormick Place, so the Chicago folks will recognize that. Just as I-55 joins Lakeshore Drive, there's a hospital there, and it's still there. That's where I was born. Then how did you make your transition? transition to the military from then? I had been in ROTC since I started community college. Mm -hmm. I used to drive to Chicago to Illinois Institute of Technology so that I could be involved in an actual collegiate, uh, a real ROTC program. I was what they call a crosstown student. So two or three times a week, I would drive from Palos Hills, that's where I grew up, to downtown Chicago, right near Comiskey Park. So mm -hmm. I knew that I wanted to do this. So I got involved with that and I worked really hard uh, on you know all the physical stuff and all the, the leadership courses and things like that. Actually applied to the Air Force Academy through our congressman. So I got the nomination from our congressman. First of all, they didn't accept me. I vaguely recall something about maybe being invited to the prep school, which means you go for like a year to get ready for the academy because you're kind of a borderline, maybe we want you, maybe we don't. And, and then four years of the academy. So I remember after two years of college going, so that's five more years. I'm not done with college, but if I do the math real quick, that's seven years of college, right? And no one's going to call me doctor. <laughs> and so uh, that was how I got involved in ROTC. And by the time I, I transferred to uh, the University of Illinois, I had two years of ROTC under my belt, and I was uh, what they call a professional officer candidate. So once you're a junior or a senior uh, you are considered kind of owned by the Air Force. You actually sign paperwork after you go to uh, what they call field training, which is basic training uh, at Lackland Air Force Base. And you come back and you are technically owned by the Air Force and expected to complete that course and then be commissioned right after graduation. So I graduated in May of 1998. Those of you at home doing the math, yes, that's five years. The Air Force paid for uh, my tuition at the University of Illinois, so I lightened my credit load and went there for three years to get my engineering degree. Mm -hmm. And uh, the day after graduation was the commissioning ceremony. So I was I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Air Force, and uh, that was where my, my Air Force career technically began. 
tell us a little bit about some of the missions you were on. Yeah, sure. So graduated pilot training in June of 2000. I believe I graduated number uh, 17 out of 16 and uh, was, was given the, uh, the coveted KC-135 to Grand Forks, North Dakota. Needless to say, that was not everyone's first choice. I wasn't super excited about that at first, but it was wonderful. Uh, it was a great assignment. First thing that you do is go to Altus Air Force Base to learn how to be a co-pilot in a KC-135, which is basically a Boeing 707 uh, with a lot more fuel tanks and uh, a boom at the back that's used to transfer fuel to other aircraft in flight. Mm -hmm. That training takes about six months. And in uh, November-ish of 2000, I got to my very first operational squadron, the 911th Aerial Refueling Squadron, the Red Eagles. And uh, of course, that was November of 2000. So I was now a basic qualified co-pilot in the KC-135. And then September happened. September 11. And uh, that turned into a lot of trips to the desert. I believe I deployed nine times with the KC-135. Mm -hmm. And uh, those were all to, uh, all except a couple of them were to uh, desert locations and flying missions in support of either Operation Southern Watch or when it began Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom eventually. My very first deployment was to Prince Sultan Air Base, uh, which is in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. But eventually, by the time OIF started, the KC-135s had set up camp at al Udeed Air Base. We started out in tents on gravel, and uh, so we were in those like 12-man tents, which probably just gave a few people some nasty flashbacks. But yeah, the 12-man tents. I also deployed to uh, Diego Garcia, which was wonderful. I got to do that twice. That's an island owned by the Brits in the middle of the Indian Ocean. So it's an archipelago. We flew missions out of there, and I also went to uh, Manus Air Base in Kyrgyzstan twice. Everything else was in the desert. So tell us about your music during this time. Were you able to bring your music with you when you were deployed? Yeah, one of the great advantages of being a guitar player, singer sort of musician is that you can carry it with you. Piano players don't have that luxury. Tell me about it. I know. <laughs> so I, I would always carry my guitar. I was the, the jackass in the, uh, the deployment line with the standard number of bags plus a big clumsy guitar case. Uh, but I would never go anywhere without the guitar. Uh, I was then further the jackass who was keeping everyone awake when sleep schedules were weird and, you know, outside singing. Most of these places were dry, so there, there wasn't a lot of alcohol, but... On the few occasions we were in a situation to actually, you know, have something to drink, things could get loud and rowdy, and it was always just an absolute blast. Some of my favorite playing was never on a stage with monitors and lights and, you know, a drum kit behind me. It was just me and an acoustic guitar and probably another guy or two who had brought their guitars as well, just sitting around in the middle of, you know, a camp like that in kind of the gathering place and just kind of trading songs and singing together and, and learning how to really do harmonies and and fun stuff like that. Well, maybe this is a good time to get you to play one of those songs. Well, sure. I'd like to play a song by Rob Raymond. He's also uh, he's one of the, the co-founders of, of Operation Encore, as you guys know. That's more for the listeners. But uh, Rob Raymond comes from the background uh, in the, the fighter world, so I was already impressed by him. Uh, but he and Chris Couric, um, whose call signs are Trip and Snooze uh, in the F-16 world, wrote a lot of songs in the early 2000s as, as young fighter guys, and they were these, uh, they went by Dos Gringos, and, and so they gained this huge following among the aviation community and the military, especially the fighter world, because they wrote excellent fighter pilot songs. And so being invited to be part of Operation Encore and knowing that Trip and Snooze were involved in this, I was like, oh, absolutely, um, I, I'd be honored and I'd be super thrilled. 
And then when I heard the songs that they had written for Operation Encore, which are a huge departure from those kind of raunchy fighter pilot songs, I was blown away by, by both of their ability to really encapsulate a lot of the experience as military aviators and, and just military personnel uh, in song. And one of the songs that struck me hardest, still does, I have trouble getting through the song without choking up a little bit, is written by Rob, and it's called Slipping Bonds. There's a, a specific culture within the military aviation world around death. And every military branch and every, every type of service kind of deals with that in its, its own slightly different way. There's a lot of brotherhood behind it, and I say that, you know, in a, a gender-neutral sort of sense. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of that sort of fraternal love that goes into that whole thing. And when you lose one of those people, it's a, a period of, of course, mourning, but also this sort of self-reflection. And, you know, what if that was me? Like, that guy was... He was no different than me, if you just look at the statistics. And so this song is actually written from the perspective of uh, a pilot uh, who dies in the line of duty. Uh, of course, leaves his friends and family behind. And I just think it's one of the, the most poignant examples of a good way to express that sort of thing to people who don't know, to people who don't understand. And there are a lot of sort of inside references, too, that you hear throughout the song. Uh, to the bar and let it ring is, is one of them. People who've been to a, a squadron bar know that there's usually a bell, and it's usually used for punishment or when somebody gives a bottle of something to the bar, and, and that's what it is. Somebody brings a bottle to say thanks or to beg forgiveness for some stupid thing they did, and uh, everyone just yells, to the bar. Stuff like that. That's just one example, but there are many others. Anyway, this song is Slipping Bonds by Rob Raymond of Operation Encore. We set off another night Looking back I did all right Slipping bonds another fight Hung it up tonight And I have pushed across the line Brother, you were standing by Oh my God, the things we tried Whoa, another ride mm -hmm. Oh my God, the things we tried See you on the other side To all good things The night is for remembering Till the light tomorrow brings Let it go and follow me Through your own worst enemy One more roll for victory 
spend the night in revelry. Tragedy, bloody dogs of war, my friends. Let's green them up, boys. Once again, I'm on the way till you get back home. Closer than you see, ever after happily. I will wait here patiently. Ever after happily. I will wait here patiently. I've done Say goodbye to everyone I never thought I'd be the one I never thought I'd be the one Back at Arlington You say that each branch of the military deals with death a different way. What how would you describe how the Air Force deals with it? Just to, to stick with the pilots, uh, I feel like people should hear their names, so I'm going to say them real quick. Uh, Eric Polero, John Boria, Mark Graziano, and Steve Eady, four of my good friends who passed away in, in service uh, to the Air Force and to our country. And uh, each one of those was a little bit different. Uh, I just want their names out there yep. uh, so that we don't forget them. But uh, for the Air Force, there's this sort of release when, when you lose someone. There's, there's the, the terrible grief and, and mourning and sense of loss. Uh, and then there's this really strong desire, as with you know, any organization like it, to somehow memorialize the, 
person who who's passed away. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the interesting things the Air Force will do very often is they will burn a piano uh, in homage to someone. Oh. Uh, that I'm probably getting this entirely wrong, but this goes back to World War One um, in the with the, the Brits. They lost their pilot who had played the piano and sung all the songs at the squadron bar in combat. And when they came back, there was a lot of drink involved. And they said, you know what? If he's not going to be able to play the piano, then no one can. Let's burn the damn thing. Uh, when we lost Steve uh, Eady, his call sign was Shooter, just a couple of years ago now, we, we burned a piano for him. And that was a big deal. Yep. But yeah. uh, so it's, it's just things like that. I like the uniqueness of it. No one wants to have to mourn. But I love the fact that if, if for some reason I were to be lost, one of the last things I would realize is like, at least there's going to be a hell of a party after this. Excellent way to do it. I want to transition into how you finished up your career in the military and how you came back to civilian life. But first, how many missions did you fly while you were in service? You know, that's a really good question. I, I think I deployed 17 times. Mm -hmm. um, I think I left the Air Force with about 2,000 combat flight hours. Mm -hmm. And again, understand that that doesn't mean for 2,000 hours I was in an airplane dodging flak or anything like that. It's just how it's classified. Only on a couple of occasions did I feel threatened by, by anything outside the aircraft. And on a couple of occasions in the U-2, I had situations in which it was... I wouldn't call it razor's edge life or death, but I was very aware of the fact that the next couple of things had to go pretty right in order for me to get home. How did you decide you were ready to retire from the military? Oh, that's easy. In the winter <laughs> of 2013, 2014, uh, Congress was once again kind of holding off on passing a budget and uh, threatening what they call sequestration again, which is a term that uh, a lot of people just cringed at. It's like a shutdown of the federal government, but not for the military. And so part of the threats Congress was making was that they were going to slash the DOD budget by something like half. And so the ramifications of that would, would be this huge decrease in manpower allowable because you wouldn't be able to support all those people. And the Army and the Navy, who've been around for 200 plus years, kind of sat back and went, ah, bull. And the Air Force seemed to go into full panic mode. Like, we got to cut 25,000 people from the force, and we got to do it, like, now. And, of course, that was proven not to be true, but one of the programs they, they came up with at that time was called uh, TERA, T-E-R-A, which stands for Temporary Early Retirement Authority. It's a, a fairly rare thing, especially for Air Force pilots, but it allows you to apply for retirement if you have 15 years of service or more as opposed to 20. And so I had 16 at the time, and I checked in with my wife. I was like, hey, I'm not sure where this thing would go, but what would you think of that? She's like, I'll fill out the paperwork, and you send it to me now. I'll just, like, how do we do that? So I was one of the lucky ones to get selected for early retirement. And that was the silver lining of uh, a real downtime in my career, because I, I actually got passed over for lieutenant colonel, which I hadn't expected at the time. But uh, it turns out that was the thing that made me eligible to apply for early retirement. Yep. It was one of those funny things where, you know, uh, sometimes the, what seems like a terrible thing in your life is great. Keith, how long was the transition between separating from the Air Force and starting with your commercial aviation career? Well, I tell people all the time, I've made a pretty solid aviation career on average flying skill and exceptional timing. I applied for the early retirement with the Air Force in January of 14. Uh, it took them about three months to come up with an answer. Hmm. And in April, I found out that I was approved for it. 
and separating uh, from the Air Force on the 1st of August, 2014. I had had my applications out for the airlines at that point, and I got a call in May to start the process to interview with my, my airline now. Got a call from a woman in human resources to set up an interview for June. I interviewed in June and found out a week later that I had been hired and was going to start in September. So I had my last flight in the Air Force uh, about a month after finding out that I'd been hired as an airline pilot. So I already had a job, which is a great feeling. Uh, I had August off and then started training in September with the airline. So um, speaking of the fall, we have a, a third song we want you to do. For uh, nice segue. I know, I can't keep thinking these up. Um, tell us a little bit about Late November and can we get you into that song? Sure. Well, Late November is the song that is, uh, it's, it's the only song I have on an Operation Encore album. I'm super proud of the fact that I got to be included with that, by the way, and eternally thankful. But uh, it's about the uncertainty of rekindling relationships after uh, any kind of separation, whether it's, you know, you broken up or, or found other things to do but it's it's about not really being sure and, and both people going like you know I, I'm, I'm not totally sure about this whole situation but you know maybe we should give it another shot and I think that resonates for those of us who've deployed it's very difficult on families and the longer you go of course the, the more difficult that reconnect always is so I think military especially deploying members of the military understand that sense of I think everything's okay but I don't know until I, I get back and, and kind of put that together. So this is, uh, this is late November. As I head her window tonight In a silent fortress a soldier who's lost the will to fight Ain't no sense in talking Some things just never turn out right So it just keeps on walking Jesus figure fade into the night She says, why can't you remember Can't you see that something just ain't right We don't need to spend our lives together Maybe just tonight, yeah She puts her head down As he turns around She can't stop thinking Should he stop to talk He wonders It's just that it's so late He's been drinking She don't know what to do without him Sees him turn around And turns on the light Hears his footsteps in the hallway Opens up her door and prays she's right And she says, why can't you remember Can't you see that something just ain't right We don't need to spend our lives together Maybe just tonight, all right Ooh. 
He says, why don't I remember? I just can't seem to ever get things right. Seems we never were in late November, back in 1995. Speaking of uncertainty in relationships, can you talk about how you're feeling now about the uncertainty of the times we're living in? You're dealing with family, you're dealing with uh, work issues, you're dealing with all the stuff that we all have to be dealing with right now. Does music offer any respite? Do you have time to dig into your music at this point? I have more time than I, I thought I would. It's actually been kind of interesting. My, my wife, uh, uh, she's absolutely wonderful with this kind of stuff. She has put together for this evening, it's, it's Friday uh, as we're recording this podcast for those of you out there in listener land. And uh, we live kind of near a cul-de-sac in a little suburban area of Sacramento. And so my wife texted all the neighbors a couple of days ago and said, hey, we can't get together at anyone's house, but what if we were all to go outside and just, you know, kind of hang out on our driveways, appropriately social distance, and, and kind of be together that way? And, and she put a plug in. She's like, I'll make Keith bring his guitar. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. And, and the fun part of that is that I've been sitting on our front porch just playing songs. I mean, I, I played an Indigo Girls song a couple of days ago, and from a block away, uh, this, this lady and her daughter had been standing out there uh, at the end of their driveway and, and gave me a standing ovation at the end of the driveway. Beautiful. I was like, yeah, it's probably just for yeah. the novelty of hearing, you know, a 45-year-old guy sing an Indigo Girl song. But Both parts. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's amazing. It's, uh, it was throat singing. It's, it's unbelievable. That stuff's so important now. I think that stuff is huge. You know, any way we can get some kind of relief from thinking about this stuff all day because that's what we're all doing sequestered in our homes is trying to figure out how to navigate it. So any way you can have a diversion and especially music. Music is huge right now. I hope so. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, I'll tell you, I, I listened uh, recently. There, there are two Operation Encore artists, um, Andrew Wiscombe and Doug Lane, who have just recently put out albums. And it's amazing to see folks with that much talent being willing to just kind of throw that out there right now for, for people. Like for those of us stuck in our house, it's amazing to go, oh man, I know this guy as I'm listening to it and, and getting to know these songs and getting to know him a little bit better. And I think it takes a lot of guts to put that out there at a time when, you know, it's not super profitable. There's, there's not, um, we, we don't have any touring going on. So I, I really look forward to, to he and, and Doug Lane, same thing. He just, uh, gave those of us in Operation Encore a sneak preview of some stuff that he's coming out with, Water from the Stone. Yep. Uh, just amazing stuff to hear, and what a, what a great time to put that out there, uh, to share that sort of really deep part of yourself with everyone who's willing to listen to it. Yep. It means a lot to me, and, and it's really cool for me to go, like, I know these guys. I have, I have drank whiskey and played guitar with these guys. Like, I can't wait to be backstage at their show one day. And, yeah. and, um, you, and you will drink whiskey and play guitars with them again, I, I, I'm, I'm sure. Whether I'm invited or not, yeah. <laughs> so, Keith, if people want to listen to more music, other than the Operation Encore album or being lucky enough to live on your cul-de-sac... <laughs> I wouldn't call it luck. <laughs> is, is there any other way they can actually access your music or they're just going to have to wait for the next Operation Encore show? <laughs> They'll have to wait for the next Operation Encore show. I am just a boring airline guy, dad, husband right now, and I guess I'm lucky that I don't have to make my living through touring because that would be very difficult. Best way to hear it is there. Uh, if you're Facebook friends with me, there's probably a, a couple of videos out there that I've done. I know one of them is actually of Slipping Bonds, which you heard a short while ago uh, that I did after uh, my friend Shooter had uh, died. 
But uh, outside of that, listen to the first Operation Encore album. Feel free to skip my song and listen to the other ones, though, because they are absolutely excellent. Monuments, the second one, is great, too. If you guys are going to do that performance tonight, maybe somebody will be kind enough to uh, shoot it with their smartphone and post it, because so, we'd, we'd <laughs> sure like to see that, and I think a lot of people would. Well, thank you very much. That's kind of you. So, Keith, look, it's been great talking to you. I want to thank you for taking the time. Adam, always a pleasure to partner with you on these podcasts. And for those of you out there who want to learn more about Operation Encore, you can go to our website, operationencore.org. Uh, these albums we're talking about are available on Spotify or you know, YouTube or any of the other streaming services that you're, you're looking for. And uh, check us out on our social media. Uh, we always love to hear from you. We can always use the support. Again, Keith, thank you very much. Adam, thank you very much. And this is Operation Encore podcast number 11. We'll be back soon. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, gentlemen. All the best to you.